Hello, welcome to the R Resources Podcast. I'm your host, Kalen Burand. In the past, American mining has taken a very different form. Previously, if you can go around the western half of the U.S., Alaska, and as, as well as a variety of other areas around the globe, like, for example, Canada or Mexico, and there will be a variety of legacy mines. These mines are substantially smaller in scale and size than what our conventional mines are like. Um, so as an example, today's mines can take up square miles, whereas there are tens of thousands of these small individual mines just across the state of Arizona, for example, not to include the whole western half of the United States. And this has been a subject that has fascinated me personally for for a very long time. And I've always wondered how we have gone from having these very small mines to these massive behemoths of mines. And and when I consider this, I find it actually to be one of the, the biggest issues with the mining industry in meaning that back Back in the day when they were mining these small deposits, your mining engineer and your geologist were the same person. Usually they were going to be the prospector, the person who was finding these small deposits and, and might work it for a few decades, uh, enough to have substance and, and to survive. Nowadays that's completely different. For example, mining engineering students may only have to take one geology class. They can be completely divorced from the entire subject. And I think that this has had tremendous implications for how we mine, because there are still a remarkable amount of very small but high-grade deposits scattered throughout all parts of the world, and we don't exploit them. And in my opinion, one of the, the biggest reasons that we don't exploit them is because our mining engineers aren't aware of how we could exploit these deposits. They aren't aware of the trade-off between grade and size. Luckily, today's guest, Dr. Catherine Moore from the University of Exeter out in the United Kingdom, sees a, a different future for mining. She's concerned about Europe's critical metal dependence on, on various other nations and is also a, a critical thinker of how we can shorten the supply chain length for some of these very critical materials and these mine materials in order to be able to have a closer connection between where materials are mined and where they end up being used in production, manufacturing, or what have you. And not only has she theorized about this idea of, of changing the scale of mines to make them more amenable to various areas, she's implemented it in, in two case studies, which we talk about during today's episode. And she hasn't just implemented these and shown, yes, we can technologically mine at a smaller scale and mine these high-grade deposits. She's done a great job thoroughly analyzing what this means for the mining industry, what this means for the communities that, that the mining industry will be operating in, and has taken a very holistic view in understanding this very nuanced topic. So during today's episode, it was a real pleasure to be able to break down her various ideas of, of what she calls small scale and switch on switch off mining. 
and this includes a variety of both technological adaptations to be able to mine small high-grade deposits, but also a totally different business model for how we mine materials and how we can find materials that may only be able to be found in these smaller high-grade deposits and how we can mine them without devastating the local communities, without causing massive fluctuations in economic activity and etc. So during today's episode, we both talk about the, the grand theory of this switch on, switch off and small scale mining. But then we also bring it back down to earth. We talk about the commissioning of plans. We talk about the training of individuals. We talk about the decommissioning. We go through the whole life cycle of the mine. And it's, it's really a brilliant exposition of how we can rethink mining to meet 21st century demands. And ultimately, I think that's that's one of the major implications of this way of thinking is that we don't need to sit and stay with the same model of mining that our grandparents used. We can innovate, we can advance, and we can change how we do mining in order to meet new demands. And I think that this is something that the, the mining industry overall is not prepared adequately to adopt. Um, for example, I, I cannot imagine that a big behemoth company such as Freeport McMoran, for example, would ever be in favor of going after a smaller high-grade deposit with a new set of technologies, rather than continuing to mine the giant Morency, which has been in operation for over a century. So with that nice uh, spiel of my personal opinion i hope that you sincerely enjoyed today's episode um, and then my final note is that i apologize for it being slightly longer than normal um, but dr Catherine moore did such an excellent job describing the the various parameters of what she is proposing for the mining industry that i felt like i could not stop her from from continuing to speak so that said, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I hope that it is incredibly valuable to you and prompts you to rethink how we mine and how we might be able to mine materials more efficiently using different scales. Um, and with that, on with the show. Dr. Catherine Moore, thank you so much for being on the R Resources podcast. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And so I want to I want to start off by jumping straight into what you're passionate about and, and what you're uh, hypothesizing on, um, which is small deposit and switch on, switch off mining. Uh, so to get started, I think that a lot of our listeners are very familiar with the large scale industrial mining that's very common throughout areas like the Southwest. Um, you think of large scale mines like Morency, Resolution Copper, just massive mines with decades of legacy. And, and what you're proposing is quite different um, in small deposit and switch on and switch off mining. So can you just explain what you mean by those two terms? So, um, thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, yeah, it's really good to start sort of with these 
end members of large and small scale mining because large scale mining has developed over decades of needing to scale up production and keeping the cost of commodities low. And so there's a lot of experience in how to do that using the efficiencies of scale. We know that the best return for investors comes from the larger scale mines that can stay in operation for as long as possible. And so, you know, a whole suite of industries has evolved around those basic concepts. The mining industry, the mining service industries, the mining investment industries, and so on and so on. And for the most part, those large-scale mines work really well for the big bulk metals that we've needed traditionally, where if there are changes in supply or demand within those mines, you can crank up production or wind down production depending on what's happening elsewhere in the world. Now, that's a bit of a problem because uh, a lot of investments required to get those mines off the ground and to go from discovery to production will take decades. So, what happens when you have incredible demand, supply and price volatility like you do for critical raw materials? So, with the critical raw materials, if you apply the same concepts, the same principles around scale and investment, what happens is you end up with one, two, three mines globally that can satisfy entire global demand. If something happens at one of those world-class mines, civil unrest, terrorism, conflict, uh, an invasion or occupation of another country, as we're seeing at the moment, then you've got a real issue in that global supply can be in crisis very, very quickly. So, that's where I came from. And how do we look at that problem? How do we reduce the criticality of raw materials that are used in relatively small quantities? One of the answers is to expand the geography of production, to diversify supply or to increase the number of mines. And what we've got, and Europe's a great case study for this. You know, you're talking about an area of the world where you are, where there's lots of really big mines. Now, in Europe, we've got a huge history of mining where we were traditionally in the Industrial Revolution or even before, we were tapping into high-grade, fairly small deposits. There's not that many of the huge world-class deposits operating in Europe. So, what we have... awful lot of ore deposits that are right here on our doorstep that we're not necessarily accessing because they can't compete using the efficiencies of scale that dominate the global mining industry. So in the event that some crisis happens, how do you rapidly get going some local mining endeavor? And just to give you some further context, this has happened. This is not a new thing. So here where I am in the southwest of England, we have fabulous tungsten deposits that were got up and running in both world wars when the UK was under naval blockade. And we needed to produce our own tungsten to strengthen the steel for tank production, for example. Um, so, you know, th- there is a, a real need for areas that can become isolated militarily, politically, to be able to actually tap into local resources. So, if you want to do that, 
how do you do it well? That's the real issue. So all of the practices, the regulations, the structures for monitoring mining have been created around the large-scale mining narrative. If we think what's traditionally considered of a small-scale mining, it gets lumped in with artisanal mining, which this has this perception of an unregulated, dirty kind of mining that in many places has been made illegal in favor of large-scale mines that will create more revenue for governments and things like that. Um, but there's, there's a real problem here in that we're making assumptions that big is good because it has lots of influence and small is bad because it's traditionally lower cost and less technologically advanced and maybe preferentially located in developing economies. And we need to debunk a lot of these ideas because if we think of the Yukon, where there's lots of artisanal and small-scale mining, it's very heavily regulated and monitored and there's lots of good practice. And if we think of what would happen in Europe, then you know Europe is very bureaucratic. It's very strong in its environmental protection and poor practice won't be tolerated. So what we need to think about when we think about diversifying the types of commodities that we use for modern technologies, we need to think about how the supply chain connects up and how changes at the consumption end are going to require increasingly innovative solutions at the production end. And so to step outside of our preconceived notions of this is the way that things are done and take it back to first principles and think in a modern context, what are the ways that we need it to be done? And we start to think about a, a wider array of possible solutions. So thanks for outlining the context in the background of this. I, I do want to ask, so I'm, I'm throughout this conversation, I'm very sympathetic to your views, but as, as the podcast host, I do need to be the devil's advocate and try understanding um, the argument in, in a very detailed manner. Um, so one thing I want to ask straight off is if we are shortening the supply chain, and what I mean by that is we are decreasing the dependence on outside sources for these critical materials. I think that an important step in being able to integrate that supply chain from from production to whatever the end product is will be how we integrate that raw material into the production process. So if we take, for example, something like computer chips, um, they need a a wide variety of these critical metals. it doesn't really matter where we're going to be producing these critical metals if we still have a bottleneck in where they're produced. Absolutely, yes. So um, there's there's, there's, so many parts of the answer to that. Um, In the first instance, we're not entirely talking only about vertical integration of the supply chain within regions. So in Europe, for example, the regional production, ramping up regional production, is just one of several approaches that are being taken in parallel. And one of the other approaches is, of course, improving trade networks, stabilizing trade networks, and the new conflict minerals initiatives that includes traceability all the way along the 
supply chain so that you can ensure best practice all the way along. So connecting up the supply chain is really important, particularly where there are bottlenecks. So you don't necessarily have to have vertical integration within region. It's just part of a possible solution. But you're absolutely right about the supply chain bottlenecks. So capacitors made in China during the pandemic were a huge problem for car manufacturing here in Europe. There's more to it than that again, in that one of the issues with globalization is the patterns of transport of materials. So in our globalized network, what we have are big mine producers producing materials that then are shipped around the world to metals processors, which are then shipped to intermediate product manufacturers, which are then shipped to other intermediate product manufacturers, which are then shipped to end product manufacturers in many, many different steps. And at each step, somebody has to make a profit and the value of the material increases. And at each step of the globalized system with shipping, we are increasing the carbon footprint of those materials. So there's an awful lot to unpack there in a whole system thinking perspective, but the landscape is changing already. Again, it's one of those things, we don't need to think about this as really breaking the mold because it's already happening. So what we've seen is the industrial revolution, colonial marine shipping routes have been really challenged by the Asian overland trade one belt routes. And we've seen China ascending in and being really successful in securing the intermediate manufacturing market let alone the processing bottlenecks, smelters and things like that. And so that has been changing recently and it continues to change right now. Again, we talk about Europe because that's where I am. In that various European battery manufacturing, electric vehicle manufacturing initiatives, governments are moving quite rapidly to establish battery manufacturing gigafactories and things like that. Uh, at the same time that's happening in Europe, things are happening in Africa in that the Africa Mining Vision, the Africa Development Bank are really putting investment into putting additional refining capacity into developing nations because what's happening is that with that value increase, the producer countries are exporting low-value materials. And so the current globalization pattern of shipping things out of predominantly African developing economies at low cost continues increasing inequality globally, where the higher value parts of the supply chain are located at distance from the centers of production. So at the same time, Europe is trying to backtrack and start producing more raw materials regionally, and it's trying to improve trade relations. The developer, uh, sorry, the, the producer countries are trying to move further along the supply chain to the higher value parts of the supply chain. And so the world is already evolving to a new form of globalization. And the rest of us are negotiating our way through those international relations. There's a wonderful French philosopher, I don't know if you know his work, called Bruno Latour, 
who wrote uh, a fabulous book, Down to Earth, about politics and the new climactic regime. And he talks very eloquently about the reorientation of the modernization front in response to factors that can be outside of our control. They can be factors about environmental responses to what we do. But we can actually extend that slightly and talk about how inequality and reducing inequality, one of the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, actually has a role to play in changing that modernization front as well. And so mining, you know, mining is absolutely influenced by all of these global shifts and changes. We know that already. And so mining is very good at seeing which way the wind is blowing and moving with those trends. And so it's, I think it's almost inevitable that we are, as a community of geoscientists who are aligned with the extractive industries and with the environmental protection industries, are going to have to watch these trends carefully and think about how we're going to adapt. Good, good. Yeah. So you touched on a lot of things I do want to jump back to. But before before we talk about a few technical considerations, I, I want to play back my understanding of, of what you said. So in, in part, this is a response to a larger geopolitical shift in how we think about our supply chains and how we think about where materials are, are being produced in trying to minimize the risk of having um, supply chain blockages and really streamlining that entire system from, from start to end. And this idea of doing small deposit switch on switch off mining is a potential solution for one piece of this very dynamic and large puzzle. Yeah, so switch-on, switch-off mining is a term that we coined to describe a business model that responds to fluctuations in commodity price. It's a subset of small-scale mining. So this is not all small-scale mining. We we should not confuse the two. Um, So let me start with switch-on, switch-off, because what we've got in Europe that we were looking at is a set of commodities that are located in historic mining provinces where mm-hmm. mining stopped not because the ore deposits were mined out. It's because bigger ore deposits became came online in other parts of the world. So the commodity price controlled their economic viability. Yeah. And so operations stopped while there was still a lot of high-grade material left in the ground. So if, you know, a large mine closes down and the commodity price hikes, then while the system is resetting itself, there's going to be a period of time in which these ore deposits suddenly are incredibly competitive. And so that might change at quite small notice. So if you want to be able to capitalize on that price hike, and you want to get your small mine running quickly, how do you do it? And then if the commodity drops again, and you want to have your mine in a state of readiness, how do you switch it off and keep it under care and maintenance, ready for the next 
round of profit, basically. Um, and of course, there are real environmental and social implications with that level of uncertainty and how do you manage that. So switch on, switch off opens a whole can of worms. That's why we were doing the research, because nobody's going to do there until you know what's actually the pitfalls and the opportunities. How do you think in a very nimble, adaptable way? So that's switch on, switch off. Small scale mining, let's be clear, small scale mining could run for a long time in a particular region. So if, if we take the Yukon, for example, small scale mining has been going on there for hundreds of years. And it's been really consistent. So you can have a number of small-scale miners operating in a region fairly successfully, or at least at subsistence level. And you can have longevity of operations. And, and this is one of the, the conversations that we had with industrial partners. Is it better to put a bigger workforce, a bigger mine in initially, high-grade your initial extraction, reinvest the capital or the, the profit that you generate and thereby reduce the amount of investment that you need? Or is it better to set up a smaller mine and have it coast with a smaller workforce? And if it's high grade and it's profitable, just use that to work up your other deposits with the small workforce so that when something happens, you can move them from point A to point B, as long as everything is licensed for extraction and management of the environment. And can you actually provide continuity of employment for a community through doing this. I think this is a really important thing, again, because of the trends that are happening, there's an increasing conversation about how communities become involved in the governments of mines and how you have community-led mining. Um, so these are all things that are being talked about or things that are happening in rare instances around the world. And how do we learn the lessons from those and think about it more widely and how it can be done well? Good. So, yeah, I, I really want to spend some time on the communities, but to better understand um, what you're you're talking about. And first, I, I want to say thanks for examining the difference between small-scale mining and switch-on and switch-off mining. Um, I personally didn't recognize that difference, um, but I, I see what you're saying. And so you have two case studies of small-scale mining over in the Balkans. Um, so can you just explain what you did and... and yeah, so um, we were in the privileged position of working with an industrial practitioner, mining practitioner, who has a lot of concessions in the Balkans, some of which are active mines, some of which are brand new greenfield site mines, and some of which are brownfield uh, under care and maintenance prospects. And so we were asked, can you uh, establish how this would work? Um, because the company had uh, a new mine which was split by a gorge and transporting commodity from one site to another was considered to be prohibitively expensive. Uh, as the question was, can you actually build a plant that we can move from one side of the gorge to the other at this one location? And then actually, after we finish mining here, can we move it to another mine? Um, because they mine, they're not involved in using just one, just extracting one type of metal. They look at copper, zinc, lead, antimony. So when you've got a portfolio like that of small 
or medium-sized. I think one of their mines would qualify as a large conventional mine. When you've got a number of mines like that, how do you actually manage to develop a solution that is nimble and opportunistic? And so that was what we were tasked with. And the European Union released uh, a call for funding to actually look at how you ramp up critical raw material supply, either by byproduct metal production or by small scale mining. So the heavens aligned and we had a funder who wanted to fund it and a mining practitioner who thought they might need it. And so we actually had a number of different mines that we looked at and we selected two, one which we knew about initially and the other one was on the hop and we changed our minds a couple of times because of course the licensing was critically important. So, um, the first mine was a mine called Olivo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And this was a very important mine because it's the first underground mine to open since the Yugoslav Wars. And uh, the company has been working with the new, since the wars, government on how you actually create the mining legislation for a new state. So this was happening in real time where obviously the economy had collapsed due to the wars. Uh, foreign investors had come in and taken over mines that had been, uh, the mining practitioner describes it as, we have mines that the war rolled over. So the tailings were bombed, the landscapes were landmined. And everything the company did as they came in as a foreign investor was about making the mine safe. So they worked with the Forestry Commission on removing the landmines. They worked with environmental agencies on reconstructing the tailings and remediating the environment. So everything they did based on what they needed to do as a business immediately created benefit to the community. Add on top of that, they needed to repatriate the mining expertise that had formed the mining diaspora. So geologists and miners who were working in Russia, Uzbekistan, Australia, were brought back into country and new mining training courses were established and they preferentially uh, employed those members of the community who had had to leave the rural landscape to migrate to cities to find work. And so they were working on reconstructing communities as well as environments. So obviously uh, a very deep and meaningful relationship between the mining practitioner, the government and the community was created and having the European Union put a big consortium project into that mix obviously meant that the EU was looking over our shoulders to make sure that things were operating well as well. Um, and so we had to abide by all our ethics requirements too. So this was really exciting. So the Olivo mine, at the same time that we were designing and building our equipment and our plant, they were working 
on developing their full-scale plant because I was obviously was a test facility where they were getting a mine up and running at full scale at the same time. So we had a situation where actually we ended up deploying two scales of mining operation on the same site at the same time. So they were building their traditional stick build plant model open air at the same time we deployed our containerized facilities which we stacked up and got going quite quickly and obviously our solutions got going very quickly because they were built and cold commissioned off site transported to site and up and running and so the mining company was able to train its workforce using our facility while their own facility was still under construction so the benefits were immediate Um, But what we were doing there is we were using a gravity-based plant after ore sorting, which was after selective mining. So we deployed several modules. Uh, Our Welsh partners built a small-scale selective cutting tool for underground operation, manual operation. French partners built and deployed a comminution facility to break up rock, um, which may or may not have run through our X-ray fluorescence ore sorter built by South African partners. After it's gone through all of that, it then goes through our gravity-based processing plant, which we built and deployed, (coughs) excuse me, from the University of Exeter. And I hate to interrupt, but um, what commodities are you looking at? So that was lead. That was a lead sericite mine, so lead carbonate deposit, a steeply dipping, narrow vein ore deposit with high grade variability. And what's really important is that the environmental license precluded the use of flotation chemicals because the local community were worried about their water supply, it being in a cast environment where recharge of water is very rapid. Yeah, so, so that's why the gravimetric processing was um, so essential. It was essential. And the joy of it was that it actually only needed gravity separation because it was quite a pure concentrate that was produced anyway. So serendipity was that the processing stream we needed matched the ore deposit and the processing scheme that the mining company were going to use anyway. Now, that didn't extend to our second deposit. But do you want to ask me anything else about Olivo? No, no. Thank you for covering that. Um, I guess... To recap, so you said there's two models for, I don't want to say how you envision small-scale mining, but you, you tested two models, the first being high-grade, high-grade a small production in order to help pay off some of the, the upfront costs of a larger mine. Is Would you classify Olivo in this category? I think I would think of Olivo as a medium-scale mine, though how you put brackets on medium-scale, I'm not quite sure. Um, so the important thing is that... That's the what you've described is how you can front load high grade production. That's one of the business models that the mining practitioner was looking at. But they very kindly opened up their mine site so that we could test the concept of small scale mining as it would apply in multiple different instances. So one of the parameters we used, for example, is what's the size of a container that you can transport? And so we decided we would use 20 foot containers. Because if you're going to remote, remotely operate, you might have to get your trucks up narrow, twisty roads that suffer degradation during the winters. 
real logistical challenges are when you small scale things, how do you actually mobilize them? How do you get to these areas that have small infrastructure? So we weren't just trying to create a bespoke small scale solution for this one mine. And that's why we then translated it to a very different context. In our Olivo instance, we had several different areas with different containers for different units. Obviously, there was an area linking to the underground where we had the cutting tool. Uh, there was an area where we had the uh, ore sorter connecting to conveyor belts and stockpiles because it was very difficult to run continuously. Again, because of the throughput bottlenecks. So let's be clear that just as you have supply chains bottlenecks, uh, in the bigger whole system supply chain, when you're talking about small scale mining of narrow, high grades, deeply dipping ore deposits, you inevitably have bottlenecks. And our bottleneck was not having one cutting tool underground that actually chewed through the ore deposit, which was fairly soft, no problem whatsoever. Our supply chain was that our ore sorter was a test scale facility with only one channel operating at a time. So in order to use that, we had to stockpile. So, you know, when you're on a research project, there are issues of scale working on the research project as well. That means you can't simply multiply up the, the pieces of equipment where a bottleneck would exist. So there's always going to be differences between what's the research scale uh, deployment you have and what would work in a real context. So we, we were not creating bespoke solutions for one instance or another instance. We were trying to think about how you're nimble, how you're opportunistic, how you're mobile, uh, and what are the problems that you have to negotiate with those. So really, it was a challenge-finding mission as much as anything else. Um, and, you know, we're we're still working through the publications on resolving all the challenges that we identified. Um, or if we weren't able to resolve them, to say, this is how we think it should be looked at. Um, and so, you know, to, it's clear that we're part of an evolutionary path. But we don't have all the answers yet. So when we talk about uh, what we were able to do for Olivo, you know, we were able to deploy the whole consortium on that mine site and collect an enormous amount of data so that we could do the whole life cycle analysis for environmental sustainability, social sustainability, uh, training and employment needs, uh, modeling the renewable, ideal, optimal, renewable energy infrastructure based on existing technologies. And that's quite an important thing because that's changing dramatically at the moment as well. Uh, we weren't able to do as much at the second site because, you know, obviously there are time constraints on a four-year project. And also our equipment all got locked down due to the pandemic in Serbia. So we managed to move our operation from our lead mine in Bosnia to the Republic of Serbia before lockdown happened. And that's, that's your second case study. Second case study. And so we had a different set of challenges there. Okay. Because um, what we were trying to do, one of the things we were trying to do at Olivo as well, is we were trying to get everything on site so that you could really reduce the amount of material you transported, reduce the amount of material that you crush, uh, reduce the amount of material that you process. And every time you make one of those step changes, you save energy. And that's really critically important if you want to high grade and go small scale. 
because the big mines are operating on efficiency of scale. If there's a big mine operating, supplying globally for one commodity, how is a small scale mine going to compete with that? And that is exactly the issues that's exactly what's happening for some of the critical raw materials uh, where a large player controls the commodity price essentially and that's regulating how many other mines can get up and running um so who holds the power uh, is really controlled by those efficiencies of scale. So if it's a commodity that has large-scale mining, how does small-scale mining compete? It's got to lower its costs. It has to. So we were able to do all of that. Uh, what happened in Serbia is the mining practitioner had a license to mine to extract on the mine site um, and was working on gaining environmental licensing for us to build some flotation into our equipment so that we could operate with gravity and flotation on mine site using the flexible flow sheets that we had constrained with a survey of all the chemicals that could potentially be needed for processing of antimony and that was rejected okay and so you know you have to work within the environmental licensing and the concerns that people have so just as we operated at oliver where we said okay this is the environmental license therefore this is how we will operate we had to say for our second site at zayacha um okay we can extract there but we can't process there because it's not appropriate and so uh we had initially been looking at how do you take the orientation of the containers and how do you actually change their physical distribution because the shape of the site at Zayacha was very different. We had this very long, narrow ledge on the edge of a gorge at which to operate. Not precipitously, I say not precipitously, very safely at the edge of a gorge. But, uh, but nevertheless, we were thinking, how do you actually use the slope as part of your gravity plant, which is often what mine sites do. Um, but what we had to do, actually, is we had to operate using a satellite mining model. Um, okay, can, can you explain what the satellite mining model is? So a satellite mining model is where you have a central processing facility and you can extract ore from multiple mines and you can move that ore to the central processing facility, which can be fully regulated for control of hazardous substances, for isolation of hazardous substances from the environment, and you can operate in a very responsible way. So that's what we did. So we had to ship our ore 20 kilometers, which on the grand scheme of things is not too bad, um, to an established, um, fully licensed processing site, which already had flotation capability. So given that we were coming to the end of our four-year program, that actually made life very easy in that we could simply deploy, again, on a nice, flat, open site. Uh, we could do our gravity test work and we could just feed it into the existing flotation facility uh, with no unknown impact on the environment. Um, and you know, the bottom line is we don't have as much data for the second mine site to be able to do the full life cycle analysis on social and environmental sustainability. But we did learn a lot of lessons about decommissioning and recommissioning plant. We learned a lot of lessons about 
how we have to think about the time scales of licensing. We learn a lot of lessons about the social and economic context in which you locate mining, uh, what are the training needs and what are the potential uh, positive as well as negative benefits for local communities and environments. You're, you're anticipating my questions. Oh, so uh, I, I want to ask about two logistical questions, and then I, I want to move on uh, to these bigger ideas of how we think about how we're um, extracting these materials. Um, so first off, you mentioned in one of your papers that you commissioned some of the equipment within two days, uh, which I find absolutely remarkable, um, given that you know, some commissioning can take years upon years. Um, but then you also said that the decommissioning process actually took longer. So can you just explain some of the logistics of the knowledge transfer systems that you guys implemented? Yeah, so um, we had a lead engineer who oversaw the design and construction of the equipment. And that all happened in the UK. And the cold commissioning happened in the UK as well. So we were putting water through the plant and managing how it all worked. And when things weren't working right, they were actually fixed in the UK before it was shipped out to the Balkans. And at the same time as that was happening, the coal commissioning, uh, we had consortium partners and people from the mining company travel to the UK and see that happening in real time so that they got to play around with the equipment before it ever got shipped. Um, so we were working on a cascade training model where we had this central lead engineer with the engineering team who were doing the build. And I'm, I'm really particularly talking about the gravity separation plant here. We can, we can talk about all equipment as well, but let's stick with this one for now. So for this one, we have the team come here. So then you train another team. And so the researchers who would be doing the test work on the ground in the Balkans were actually trained at the cold commissioning stage in the UK. And you know, the shipping took a while. Uh, uh, there's, there's all sorts of logistics that you don't necessarily anticipate. Because we had containers that were modified for a hopper to be attached to the top or for spirals bolted on the side, which were shipped in separate crates, it meant that you couldn't just ship containers on a ship. You actually had to have them on a truck from door to door. So the, the export-import requirements for this kind of approach, actually, you know, that, that's considerable. Um, and so, you know, you know as a mining company that getting things through customs is always an issue and things can get stuck at customs for a long time. If you add that to the complexity of modified containers and, you know, the UK, an island nation, putting things on a truck and then you've actually got to ship the truck and then you've got drivers who get trapped at customs with your equipment. It, it just, and, and then of course you've got Brexit and you've got changing nation EU regulations. So we were shipping from the UK in a mid-Brexit organization paradigm. We were shipping things through the EU to the outside of the EU at the other end. Um, and then into Balkans countries that had post-Yugoslav wars and customs checks. Um, so, you know, that was great fun. Um, uh, fortunately, I, I wasn't on the front line of that. Um, but, you know, 
that that all happened and i've actually forgotten where the question was going so what was the question again <laughs> um so so we started off talking about the the training modules but um okay so we've got to the stage where the equipment's arriving and uh-huh. what we have to do is coordinate to have the cranes on site and be able to offload from the trucks and then have the expertise arrive at the same time not knowing how long things were going to get stuck at customs. And so we had to coordinate bringing people together with the trucks, with the crane, which is hired locally. And then we have to deploy the equipment. Now, because it's been carefully packed for rapid unpacking, already cold commissioned, then literally the hot commissioning stage is crane it into place, bolt things on, and put all through and see how it works. So that doesn't take a long, a long time at all. If you think of hot commissioning as you have to go through the whole process of optimization, then we have a difference of opinion in, in our different definitions. Because we were a research project, the whole project was about optimization and test work. So our commissioning was to get the thing up and running and working. And that's a difference between a research project and a full mining project. Okay. So uh, now, now diving into the more broader questions. So something you've touched on a, f- a few times, but is really, really on the front of my mind is efficiency. So you just brought up this idea of optimizing your, your metallurgy and your mineral processing. Um, I think personally with, with my background in metallurgy, I think it's, it's, the hallmark of, of large scale mining is that you have such optimized systems. And so what I want to ask is in these situations where you don't have the same breadth of um, optimization, how are you able to, to make up the efficiencies? Right. So the point is that you don't. I think that's a really <laughs> important thing is that optimization for a large scale mine is about tiny incremental gains uh, on the unit cost um, and you you really don't have those for the high grade small deposits and so you have to recognize that your efficiencies are not as high but then you're not crushing as much rock because your grade is initially higher anyway so optimization looks quite different it's about maximizing recovery from what is already high grade at minimal effort okay so the efficiencies of scale in a large scale mine you know you're putting an awful lot of energy in you're putting an awful lot of technology in at high capex and the point is if you lose some of your efficiency you're not going to be able to get the same return on investment so you are not going to be able to have the same high level of investment for a high capex startup so essentially you have to really get away from the large scale mindset and you've got to start thinking low capex and how you actually balance your opex so low capital expenditure for those that don't use that parlance and you want to reduce your capital expenditure your capex and you want to manage your operating cost your opex so that uh, you've got a balance between 
good recovery of what's already high grade for the operating costs that are higher. So it's a new equation that you've got to engage with. What are you trying to optimize in a sense? And so when I'm, what I'm trying to ask is, I hate to, to go back to comparisons of large scale mining because I, I want to get away from that mindset. But uh, for ease of example, in a average process, um, you'd be optimizing like your recovery or there's, there's some parameter that you're trying to maximize or minimize. And so in, in this situation, we're starting off by saying that we just, we just want to make a profit in managing the OPEX, but during the short life cycle or, or perhaps long life cycle. Um, but during the time of operation, what are you trying to improve upon? Well, you're, I mean, the, the same does apply in some ways in that you're always trying to maximize recovery and you're always okay. trying to minimize costs. I mean, every business is going to do that. Every business is going to do that. But the question is, how does it actually fare on the financial markets can it what you produce compete with the global commodity price that's the bottom line because you don't necessarily have to compete in terms of production and efficiency with a large-scale mine you just have to be economically competitive on the commodity market so your profit may not be as big as for a large mine it certainly won't uh, you will have a different financial structure to a large-scale mine. But does it constitute a viable business proposition or a company? And if you're a multinational global mining corporation, it will not. This is really important. Those huge companies have massive overheads. And there's no way that the financial recovery, the financial profit from a small scale mine would actually warrant even the legal costs of a global mining corporation. So you're actually, this is, this is a business model that really works for junior to intermediate companies with lower overheads and also those companies that are trying to reduce their carbon footprint, trying to create a profile as a responsible miner, trying to think about minimizing physical and environmental footprints, trying to lower their carbon taxes. So all of these kind of things become uh, really important consider important considerations. What's the business model of a company? Does it fit the mining paradigm? And so again, we, we talked about sort of diversifying access to commodities. It is also diversifying the nature of the traders within the minor metals market, um, and and that's problematic. Because in the boom and bust cycles of mining, you get buyout of smaller companies by larger companies and you get agglomeration. And so any time that things are quite challenging, we'll see a reduction in the number of minor players uh, in the mining industry across the globe. Um, and so you know, these things are in a constant state of flux. Uh, and again, what, what's really interesting is that even uh, eight years ago, if you talk to some of the big global players, they would have said to you, we're really not interested. But actually, even that's evolving now. And some of the big corporations are thinking it just makes sense to have a bigger portfolio and to think more about critical raw materials as well. 
I see. Okay, that, that's that's really clarifying. Um, I appreciate you outlining that. Um, so I, I do want to be uh, respectful of your time. So I, I want to come jump to what I think will be our last topic, um, which is the ethics of this. Um, so there are two dynamics here that I think are really important to touch on. Um, the first is how the, the social component and the local economies, um, trying to understand or, or navigate how local communities feel about this and, and how they can potentially use this as a way to reduce unemployment without having a heavy reliance on mining, just in case of, as you said, the boom bust cycles. Um, and then the second one being environmental, but let's start off, let's start off with the, the social piece. Okay, so um, I, mean, I was delighted to work with some partners from Finland who are specialists in the social sustainability of mining. And they uh, really helped frame the whole concept of small scale mining from a technological viewpoint in terms of social and environmental sustainability. So that was forefront of the project right from the get go. I think it was really important that it was only in the second month of the four year project we had, we had a stakeholder workshop on the ethics of mining to think about how we actually uh, plan this out responsibly adhering to the EU Charter on Human Rights on the uh, International Association promotion of geoethics, geoethical promise, uh, how we actually find out what literature there is on the ethics of mining and how we respond to that and all the different attitudes and responses to that. So we did that, but then the, the social sustainability guys from Finland, they, they did some absolutely brilliant work in interfacing with the communities, not just about the mine sites where we were, but their attitudes to small-scale mining. And there is a real reason okay. for this. I mentioned already that we operated in a post-conflict setting um, where prior to the Yugoslav wars, what was already happening was a move from state-sponsored industry, forestry, mining, towards increasing capitalism. and. Okay. Prior to that shift, local communities had been able to depend on these extractive industries, both forestry and mining. And so a job in industry was a job for life. It was security for the community. Mm -hmm. And obviously going through the wars, that security had been removed from those communities. So seeing the mining companies move back in was really welcomed. And it's not everywhere in the world that you can say that. Um, so we were in a very unique and privileged position to be welcomed and talked to by the community very frankly about what their expectations were for the outcome of mining getting going again. Um, and so they were really delighted to see the mine operating. Um, this is above and beyond what we were doing. And um, they were really delighted that we were there and to talk to us. Uh, they were really delighted that the environmental licensing was in place, um, that there was expertise coming back in, that the environment was being looked after, that all the spin-off employment was happening, that families and communities were being reunited. So this was all really positive. And you don't want to put a rosy tint on everything. You don't want to greenwash what was happening. And so the social scientists really tried to dig down in a number of different mine sites. So they actually did more than we did. They looked at Oliver, they looked at the Zayacha mine site, they looked at the Veliki Maiden, 
minerals processing site, the center of satellite mining model. And they used another mine that we'd actually investigated as one of our possible sort of backups if our case didn't work out and we had to relocate. So there's another one, Garajdi, that they looked at as well. So they actually went to four communities to work out what all their attitudes were towards mining. And they asked the question, you know, are you worried about short life of mine? Are you worried about small scale mining? And you know, essentially they, they didn't particularly differentiate between small and large scale mines or the size of workforces. They just view any mining as a potential job for life or for multiple generations. And so there are expectations there that don't fully align with what small scale or particularly switch on, switch off mining would be able to deliver. And there was another issue which was quite interesting in that, you know, they also linked mining of metals to coal mining. And they were aware of some significant environmental perturbations that had happened nationally associated with coal mining. And so coal mining impacts did make them worry particularly about the environmental impacts of mining. And so we could see that in the environmental licensing of the sites that uh, we deployed on. So very, very cautious and quite rightly so, because if the rest of the industries that share that landscape depend on the environment, then the environment actually crucially underpins the social sustainability. And because we're working where there's forestry, we're working where there's a really big dependence on agriculture. So the visibility and the transparency of ethical, fully licensed mining practice is as important for small scale mining as it is for large scale mining. We also thought very critically about, we talked earlier about that training model. And you know we've also talked about CAPEX and OPEX and variability in high-grade ore deposits. And all of these things come together in that if you've got a high-grade ore deposit that's very variable and a lower capex solution that still has to be able to respond to changes, and if you've got to protect the environment, you've got to be able to switch off fast. So, you know, computer controls might be too expensive, the fully automated computer controls, you are going to have a workforce that combines highly skilled people who can manage operations and deal with the technologies and the automation that you do have. You need semi-skilled people to work the equipment and you also need fairly low-skilled workers on the site to manage the stockpiles and things like that. So we were working out, and there's still ongoing research into the blend of skill levels and the blend of age groups that you get in these different mining models and how that can actually contribute to a mature health and safety culture. So uh, yeah, there's somebody still writing up research on that. So I hope that that will be next year, because it's really exciting stuff. Um, But all of this combines to create training opportunities for local workforces who then interface with the rest of the community. And the mine company that we were working with, being very forward thinking, in their early days, what they were doing was already creating benefit for the community. And one of their questions was, how do we continue creating benefit for the community? Because we have all these different deposits 
we want to continue operating on these different deposits. We need good community relations. We need to create value for the community from our mining because it benefits us as well as them, as well as being ethical. And they were very responsible producers and they wanted to operate ethically. So there was a moral underpinning. There was a community benefit and there was a business benefit as well. So these things, fortunately, with that mindset come together and you start to think, if you have a small scale mine, if it's not going to operate for very long, how do you actually spread the financial cost of responsible practice? You have to actually separate a portion of your budget for sustainability right from the start. You can't sort of think, I will generate profit for stakeholders, and at the end, coming towards the life of mine, I will then maybe reduce that benefit for stakeholders, and I will put money aside for my restoration. You can't do that. And particularly if you're going to put a mine under care and maintenance for a while between operations, you can't do that. So you have to have a sustainability work plan right from the start, which includes environmental protection right from the start, which, of course, is best practice in large scale mines as well. But you actually have to think about catalyzing other industries that will, in the event of a short life of mine, actually support the community as you withdraw your industry. That's the responsible practice. And if it can be an industry that actually benefits the mine operator, then it is not pure philanthropy. It, it, you know, so the question is, what's the co-production that needs to happen? That's, yeah, I like, I like how you frame that. Do you, do you have an example of, in a sense, I, I want to put it in the same bucket as economic diversification. I don't know if that's correct. Um, but do you have an example of if one of these operations were to switch off, what a good responsible plan would be to ensure that the expectations of the local community being that they have employment um, would be consistent with reality? You know, there are instances where that's already done in the mining community. Um, you know, okay. there are companies in Africa who work with farmers to really generate new farming practices or to revisit traditional farming practices and leave a positive legacy that way. But we were looking in a very uh, carbon footprint oriented mindset. And one of the things that we were looking at because of the renewable energy infrastructure we were modeling, it, it did relate to the forestry. So, you know, I said prior to a transition towards capitalism, forestry and mining were running alongside one another in a state-sponsored kind of industry. And forestry is up and running there again. But what's happening again with foreign investors is uh, a lot of the biomass fuel being taken from the forestry was being shipped across borders into Europe and being used for renewable energy industries in other countries. And so one of our thoughts was, well, how do you actually create chaining and galvanize renewable energy infrastructures for within country use? Uh, reduce local pollution and by galvanizing those industries how do you actually leave a legacy which is a, a platform for rural industries um, and so you know it can work in exploration with drilling for wells in order to provide water for 
drill holes. It can work in mining settings where energy infrastructures are put in place. But if the mining operation moves, maybe the renewable energy infrastructures don't. Yeah. Um, so these are the kind of things that we were thinking about sort of midway towards the end of the project. Initially, when we went along and we were talking to the mining company, they were thinking, oh, you know, the particular agricultural commodities, mushrooms, beetroots, things that they were thinking about. But that changed as the project went along and we started looking at these whole systems and interconnections, looking at the community dependency on different uh, parts of the landscape and where the opportunities and challenges were arising. So it has to be context specific. So you can think about how you optimize your mining operation to an ore deposit. You can think about how you optimize your legacy to a community and a landscape. Well, that's that's wonderful, uh, and that that makes that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you explaining that. Um, so the last topic I, I want to touch on is more on the environmental side, and a big lingering question for me, and it's it's quite a meta question, is a question in the tragedy of the commons, and that is mining is conventionally seen as, as disruptive to the landscape. I put conventionally there. <laughs> and so how are we ensuring that if we were to, to do small scale mining, that it's, it's not going to simply diffuse the negative environmental implications over a wider area in small pockets. Whereas in the large deposit case, you in a sense sacrifice one large part of land um, but it's it's very centralized. Yes, I think that's that's an important consideration because you know, when we think of a large scale mine, we're thinking of a huge hole in the ground. Um, that, and what we were working on was underground mining. So almost like keyhole mining, where there's no scar from the actual extraction itself on the land surface. The scars arise from the creation of waste rock and tailings. Yeah, and for any water outflow that leaks out that you haven't managed to treat. So there's a few things around that. Um, you know, again, it's a very unique position. Well, it's not very unique, but you know, I'm, I'm working in a different region of the world to you. You know, if if we look at where we were working in the Balkans, there were lots of old mines. There were lots of voids under the ground already, and that's the case here in the southwest of England as well, where exploration mining companies are trying to get a mine up and running, and they've got to think about what they do with their waste rock and tailings. In the Balkans, where you, know, you, had, you had Saxon mines here, where we had industrial era mines, what happened at those mines during their mining heyday is everything was dumped, and it was devastating. Uh, in Cornwall, you know, there's huge waste rock heaps still that are visible. Yes, they've been colonized by vegetation. And yes, they're part of the heritage landscape that's now protected and enjoyed and valued. But at the time, they were raw, toxic dumps, or even they were tipped over the edge of a cliff and into the sea. And then you had red sea waters. And you know, there's still some of those legacies around. So that's obviously an issue. And people see that issue and they worry greatly about mines. So there's a couple of different things here. Again, we've got a difference in scale of occupation of the landscape. This is the other thing, is that in Europe, if we're going to get small scale mines running, they're cheek by jowl 
with populous communities. People are living all around where these mines would be. And particularly because they're heritage landscapes, you know, communities grew up around the old mines and have continued to live there. So you're not going to be able to dump tons of waste rock on the surface. But we have this landscape that's already Swiss cheese, right? So here in Cornwall, the mining companies are thinking, right, backfill solutions, here we go. So this is really important for selective mining as well. The point about selective mining is you're trying to remove as little as possible for energy consumption reasons and transportation reasons. You're trying to make the smallest holes you can, but you're surrounded by pre-existing voids. So it's the case that when you extract rock, crush it up, take something out, the original rock mass will never go back and fit into the void that you've created. But if you've already got a ton of voids, you've got a bigger area for possible backfill solutions. So in terms of waste rock, you don't have to create a big mess on the land surface. And there's also really neat stuff happening with tailings in that obviously if you can gravity separate, you might not need to crush. So you can think very carefully about where your tailings are created. Are they on site or are they at a central processing facility? But there's also great innovations happening in tailings management with geomembranes, packing and dewatering and how actually then in these bags move tailings. Can you pack the tailings in voids underground? So again, it's just thinking creatively about how you isolate a mining extractive processing operation from superficial impacts. And as I say, there's innovative companies are working on all of these things already, um, but they're frequently used as deployable plants for cleanup operations. If you can just deploy them from the outset, actually you can manage things. And there's, there's another wonderful mine um, of Bulby in the north east of England, which is going to be put in underneath a national park. And the material's never going to come on the land surface. It's going to go through a 20 kilometer long tunnel to a port outside the national park. It's a, a phosphate mine. So the point is, modern mining, if the economics work and you can afford to put the responsible mining practice in place, you can afford to isolate the industrial impacts from the environment. And you can do that better for a smaller underground mine than you can do for a large open cast extractive operation. So, yeah, this is where you have to separate out modern technological regulated small scale mining from unregulated artisanal and small scale mining. And you have to think about how you transfer knowledge from one of these types of small scale mining to the other. And that's not a one way stream. That's a two way stream as well. So there's a lot that the modern technological small scale miners can learn from the artisanal miners and vice versa. But we do not have to replicate the poor practices of small scale mining from the past. And certainly in Europe, we wouldn't get away with that anyway.
Yeah, yeah, same, same here. And uh, I love a lot of what you said, bringing it back to the bottom line. I think that's always important, but also this this idea that we can we can do things better now, and we can do things in. in we can learn from our lessons. Of the- is the development of ESG criteria for investment, so that economic, social, and corporate governance, and the mm-hmm. World Bank oversight of investment, um, which now is also subject to legal scrutiny, the World Bank itself over mining impacts, mean that investment is now coupled to good, responsible, ethical practice. And so that's really encouraging because it means that the environmental and social cost of mining is increasingly going to be factored into the bottom line business model for extractive operations. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And I think it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, um, that really we're, we're at a point where we're adapting to a new a new. Um, set of regulations, a new set of financial markets. And so it's, it's not really the question of, of if we adopt this, but it's how do we make it feasible? How do we make it environmentally and socially responsible? Um, so the very last thing, I, I always like to end on asking for guests' final thoughts, if they have tangible actions for, for listeners um, to come away with the conversation with. Um, I think everyone will be coming away with this very enlightened and with a lot of great new knowledge, but what are a few things that you would like our listeners to be able to to put into practice in their daily lives? Uh, There's a few things. I think the first thing, uh, you know, sort of thinking philosophically and about attitudes and impressions is that one of the big challenges we had was in persuading people to let go of their existing mindsets. And I don't mean the communities, I mean the the industrial professionals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so our lead engineer uh, came in after we got the funding and, and we had a, a period of transition where he needed to adjust from a large-scale optimization mindset to actually coming on board with what small-scale mining meant. And he did, and he got really excited about it. And then he went and developed a relationship with the group of engineers who were building our gravity processing facility. And he came back and said, I'm really struggling to get them to let go of this is the way things are done. And so that that was ricocheting through our research program in that, you know, as, as a group of creative academic thinkers, we put the proposal together, we had these innovative industrial thinkers who were on board, and we got the funding, and then we employed people who had a period of adjustment. They talked to people who had a period of adjustment, and we're talking to more people now who are going through periods of adjustment. Um, and so it's about letting go of the structures that we've clung on to previously. Uh, thinking about that modernization or the, the reorientation of the modernization front and being prepared to embrace it. And that's really important, I think, because the mining industry has a reputation for being somewhat risk averse. And you know, we, were, we were teasing this out. It's really grossly unfair in many ways, because if there's an adaptation that fits with the mining supply chain and the unit processes on a mine site. And if it increases the economies of scale and the unit cost efficiencies, then it is adopted. The problem is that because the raw materials producers microeconomic model depends on that commodity price, per unit cost, the margins are slim. 
And so the risk of implementing a change can be very high. So there's a lot that needs to align for mining industry professionals to change practice. So while we're sort of saying we need to let go of the way things are done, we need to do it in a real-world context where we acknowledge that there are challenges to technology adoption and challenges to patterns of behavior. Um, so at the same time as thinking in a more open way, thinking in a pragmatic way about what are the problems with this um, really helps us see a way forwards. So I think it's a bit of a long journey that we're just starting out on. Um, but I, I think the other thing I would take away is how metal mining and semi-metal mining is coupled to the coal, oil and gas extractive industries. If we're operating and mining at the minerals energy nexus, and this is particularly important for the critical raw materials, we have to decarbonize our operations. So that's incredibly important. We need to decarbonize our operations. We need to decarbonize our supply chains at the same time we're reducing those bottlenecks. And we have to uh, acknowledge that perceptions of mining are tied to perceptions of coal mining and oil and gas extraction. Uh, so to think about clean energy, clean mining, and the production consumption relationship is really, really important. And the more people I talk to about it, the more people try to manage their own individual consumption. Uh, I think this is really important because the exponential increase in demand for particular metals, for the low carbon transition is exponential and the pressure that's going to place on the mining industries is really extreme. So it's not just a case of us as professionals finding the metals and accessing the metals, it's also about how we articulate uh, individual consumption practices. Mm -hmm. yeah, and on our first episode, uh, Jody Banna, she she also believes that we need to shift how we think about consumption. I loved her example. She brought up the fidget spinner and how, you know, a few years ago they were everywhere. And now in some landfill, there's potentially tons of metals um, that were thrown away in these tiny little fidget spinners. So anyway, I, I think I think your insight is very true. And uh, I think it's very important that as a society that we start considering these down with that. Uh, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time to talk and expand upon these ideas. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful to chat with you and, and learn more. Um, it's, it's been fascinating. Um, so Dr. Catherine Moore, thank you for being on the R resources podcast. Thank you very much. And thanks for taking the time to listen to me talk about new creative ways of mining for the future. Thank you very much.